HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. We are coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, excited to be with you today. Um, when I am not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at one of our restaurants, uh, Del Anima, Lartuzzi, La Picho, or the Wine Bar and Fora, where, where we continue to feature Midnight Magnums, or half-price Magnums after midnight or until 2 a.m. Monday through Saturday. And uh, great, great place to, uh, to get some large format fun. Um, if you like In the Drink, you can always listen to us every Wednesday morning here at heritageradionetwork.org. You can subscribe to iTunes as well, and you'll get it uploaded every week right into your inbox. Uh, excited today for a great show. Um, we have an old friend of mine who was the wine director at one of the best wine stores in New York City called Crush Wines and Spirits, where he really pioneered a fantastic Riesling selection when uh, very few stores, uh, I can't think of any, that, that really focused on that. Um, he, uh, so he introduced a lot of people to great Riesling that way. Later started his own company called Von Boden, where he represents some of the very best Riesling producers uh, in Germany, uh, and non-Riesling producers as well, um, just fantastic growers in Germany. We are, we are really honored to work with them over at Anfora, and uh, he's also the founder of the Riesling Fire event, which uh, I'll be really happy to uh, participate in this Saturday over at the White Hotel. Uh, still some tickets left, though not very many for the uh, for the tasting in the afternoon, um, but the, the grand dinner at night is sold out. Stephen Bitteroff, welcome to In the Drink. Sorry for the uh, extra long Woo. intro. 
God, I've done so much. That's incredible. Incredible biography. Thank you. I'm psyched to be here. I'm psyched to be on the uh, the other side of the window. What, uh, what what did I miss? What did I? Uh, how did you? How did you form this love for all things Riesling? Well, I, so I would start by saying it's not all things Riesling. At the end of the day, I'm. Uh, I think it's an incredible grape. I think it's one of the noble white wine grapes of the world for sure. But I'm not one of those people who is just Riesling everywhere, anytime, any day. For me, it is. You know, I love Pinot Noir as well, but I tend to really like Pinot Noir from Burgundy. So to me, to pull. To pull the grape away from the terroir, the region, the culture that's making it is a little bit of a an easy way out, and it's one I don't take. So, so we're not going to see any Claire Valley Riesling. Well, at I won't Riesling. be bringing any. People are people are welcome to, and um, and I don't mean to sound kind of haughty about it at all. You know, it's just one of these things for me. German wines um, are really the epitome of of Riesling in the same way that maybe many people would agree or some people at least that burgundy is the kind of the pinnacle of, of pinot noir so for me it's not exactly just riesling because um, i've had a lot of horrible rieslings i've had a lot of ones that i don't like and the same is true for any other grape so for me you know the grape and the region are tied together and for me the top is is germany and did your love for german riesling form at crush or is there something before that you know what? i mean honestly it was before crush for sure in fact i went to crush largely because of the selection they had, um, the wine director before me was also into the wines, and and they had a great selection to begin with. So that was one of the reasons I led there. It was really, it was really just a matter of, especially you know, this is the kind of early two thousands, and it was such an era of the hundred point, hundred percent oaked, super alcoholic, plush like you know, shag carpet of a wine culture. It's like the bigger, the more alcoholic, the heavier, the more powerful, the better. And that was the culture that I was sort of surrounded by and kind of, you know, I don't know, sort of attacked by. So, you know, to be perfectly honest, when you're beginning your kind of journey in that road, it was like those were interesting and they still are interesting. There's a lot of great things to have from there. But German wines were such a counterpoint. They were such a radical departure from everything else I was drinking in terms of the lightness, the clarity, you know, put the the residual sugar factor way, way, way to the side because that's to me, the least interesting part of it all, but just the delicacy, the lightness, the clarity, the energy, and frankly, the fact that you could geek out, you could get into vineyards, and you could get into the history of it for like a relatively inexpensive price, whereas I was into Burgundy too at the time, and you know, back in then, like you could, I could indulge in some really, really good Burgundy every once in a while, but it was a different, you couldn't do it Monday through Friday in the way you can. Yeah, I, I agree with you. If you were to describe Riesling to someone who's maybe never had it, and you say it is an aromatic grape, and some of the best examples have residual sugar, you kind of think that maybe it has more in common with those blockbuster wines, but in fact, the ones that, that you carry and that, uh, that, that you love and that I love as well, kind of have more in common with burgundy they're more yeah. mineral driven and they're textured with great acidity and yeah yeah more I subtle mean, to me the the parallels you know it's, it's interesting historically speaking and a lot of people know this but a lot of people still don't the turn of the 19th century so we're talking you know 1890s the early 2000s german wine was the most expensive white wine in the world and if you were a fancy pants collector you had in your cellar your red wine was bordeaux and your white wine was German wine, and those were the two wines that when you had people over and you wanted to show them how fancy you were, you brought those out, right? That was your that was your stock and trade. That said, the the history of, of German wines, especially in the Mosul, which is an area I'm most familiar with, um, it parallels nothing as close as it does Burgundy, both in terms of like the the articulation and the the sort of discovery of the vineyard site, which was done over hundreds of years by monastic culture, by the prominence of the vineyard site and not the grower. Um, and by the fact that like most of the people that like them 
tend to be a little bit geeky and a little bit more serious. And frankly, the status that German wine has right now, which is very much of an outsider wine, you know, it's one of these things that no matter where I go, I meet with people like you, professionals in the field, and everyone is so happy to taste German wines. It's like, can I taste with you? Of course, come on in. And, and then you taste it. Everyone loves everything. It's like, yeah, I can't actually buy any of it because I can't sell it. And the fact that, you know, German wine right now is a little bit on, a little bit, it's on the, the periphery for sure. It's a kind of a wine dork wine. That's sort of where I envision Burgundy as being 20 years ago, that it was something that, you know, if you were fancy pants, you had your Bordeaux, but if you were really kind of a geek, you got into the the specificity, the vineyard, the details, right? Right. It's the, it's the underdog. You're yeah, for man. It. My analogy is always stamp collectors. It's like, dude, Burgundy Burgundy buyers twenty years ago were stamp collectors. Before it was just the masters of the world who kind of bought them. They were just the, the stamp collectors, man. They geeked out about this parcel, that parcel, Vogue's Musigny Blanc, Bourgogne Blanc, which is really Musigny, blah blah blah. Like the details are what make it would make it so fascinating and it's the same thing for German wines yeah and you're you're right if you look at uh, even wine lists from turn of the century you see that Riesling is more expensive than Burgundy uh, on those wine lists do you know uh, and you can actually take a look at, at a lot of these old wine lists over at uh, the New York Public Library they have a great uh, great collection I think Bobst uh, the, New, the NYU library might as well um, do you know what what were those factors that led to the decline? Was it? Uh, I imagine World War Two had something to do with it. Yeah, hell yeah, World War One, World War Two. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, was you know there are so many. Those are for sure the big factors mm-hmm. that destroyed, you know, destroyed so much of the culture, so much of the of the great things being done in Germany. Where you know. We're set back decades, decades, decades. Um, beyond that, you know, I think then the resurgence of German wine in the in the sixties and seventies, which really factored on, you know, this is kind of the the rebirth of Germany in terms of an economic and an industrial powerhouse, and you know, they applied that to the wine business, which was great money for a short term, but it was short sighted because you know they were making all these things, the Liebfrau milk and the you know the what are the other the blue nuns and all these kind of cliches of German winemaking came out of that. And they were, for a short time, Vogue. I mean, you know, the residual sugar Rieslings that we know and love in the U.S. are, are for the most part, in the German market, an anomaly. They like the wines. It's a, it's a cultural fact, and it goes back centuries. But the majority of German wines, the majority of Germans drink dry German wines. And the, and the residual sugar wines were largely for the export markets. Even the very high-quality residual sugar wines. Largely, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, this is not to say, you know, it's it's too easy a picture to paint to say that, you know, Germans drink dry wines and the UK and the US drinks the sweet wines. That's not exactly the case. But certainly for the higher end, I would say it's higher. It's sort of 50-50. But for, you know, the sweet residual wines that were more kind of manufactured in the 60s and 70s, which were extraordinarily popular, those were kind of hip wines, so I understand. Um, in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, the Liebfrau Milk and the Blue Nun, these were wines that, you know, you opened at cocktail parties and people thought you were pretty sophisticated and that was a good thing. But that in the long term kind of destroyed the reputation of the residual sugar wines that are a little bit more quality-driven, a little more interesting. Years ago, I visited the Mosul with a, a non-wine industry friend uh, who is German, uh, actually from just outside of the Mosul region. Uh, he was, not not that I've ever been a great scholar of German wines, but just in my basic uh, research was impressed by the me knowing certain vineyard sites. It's like, this this is 45 minutes away from me. I never, I've never even been here. Uh, um, but what I was impressed by is how many people had uh, well-aged wines in their cellars. 
Um, when I've gone to other European wine regions, it uh, people tend to, unless it's a producer who that is part of their mission to keep a vast library, um, they, they sell them all out. Uh, the local market drinks the fresh wine. Uh, is that still something that is going on, or did I happen to visit the, the few producers who who had some old wines. Yeah. <laughs> I would say probably a little bit of both. I think historically speaking, how long ago was it? Uh, it was probably eight years ago, nine years ago. Yeah. You know, things are things are changing quickly. Um, I would okay. say there's still a lot of producers that do, have, that do have big, deep sellers. And, you know, to be perfectly frank about it, I think it's sort of half and half. Some of these producers, like Prume, Prume has an incredible seller. I'm told the great sellers of the, of the Mosul are Prume, Egon Mueller and Kartoiserhof, just in terms of quantities of wines they have buried away. And obviously for these three estates, it's not its not that they can't sell them. It's more just a matter of the culture. You hold these wines back. They do age. They're, you know, they only get better. So it's a little bit of like protecting your assets. Um, and then for other estates, it's, yeah, they just can't sell them, right? So they'll, they'll hold them back. And people aren't concerned as, as much. I think also then there was this fact, very much it's, it's a little bit more of a stereotype with Austria that they want current vintage right they and like the minute it's over eight months old it's like oh that's you know that's done it's on to the new thing and there was a little bit of that in germany i would say over the last you know 15 20 years that sort of you'd find an old seller and you know the older growers that had it certainly the young kids everyone young knows there's a vogue the vogue that we have in new york is and all throughout the u.s for older wines is mm-hmm. in europe now too for the younger kids everyone older is better which is always not the case but they say that um but for the older growers, you know, they kind of will show you the cellar and it's like, oh, there's wines from the 70s and 80s. Ugh, like, what am I going to do? And they kind of pulling their hair out. And, you know, you're sort of like, you're like kind that's of, amazing. <laughs> I want like, to. Oh, well, let's see what we could do. I will help you try and take some of these, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's changing. Yeah. It's changing. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, we were talking about how, how Riesling was so expensive uh, in the past. And now I, I considered a, uh, a truly great value. And I think you're, uh, you're passing it along with uh, not only Von Bowden, but really the the cost for uh, for the the tasting. Can you just tell us about who's going to be there at the tasting, and is it really only thirty dollars? Yeah, for sure. So the a quick history and you know in thirty seconds of Riesling fire. So the yep. first one was two thousand twelve, and they were you know to make a long story short, I basically was hanging out with Klaus Peter Keller in Germany. We got pretty drunk, and I was like, we should do a German wine law palais. Like that would be fun, and you know it's like oh, okay, we can try it and. And the two agreements were made that, one, if he agreed to come, he'd be the first on it. You know, having someone of his stature coming in makes it sort of real. I said, listen, if you agree to come, I will do what I can to get other growers there, and I'll try to get some people together. But if it's like 10 people in a room drinking psychotic German wines, like, so be it. But yes. So that's that's how it began. And so it started humbly and sort of small. And every year, everything sold out quickly, but there are always very limited numbers of tickets available, blah, blah, blah. So for this year, I really wanted to try something that was a little more open-ended that sort of, you know, that could bring in not only the the kind of the hardcore, like, stamp collector German wine dork, but also people who are just interested in the culture of food, the culture of wine, who don't really necessarily want to come to an hour-long, like, symposium or lecture about a wine, but would be down with coming in, tasting some wines and, like, Either having spending more time drinking more or getting the hell out of there if they were not interested, right? So the grand tasting, which is taking place this Saturday um, at Back Label Wine Merchants in Midtown Manhattan, is the, is that it's the big event. You can buy a ticket for twenty nine dollars. There's going to be over sixty wines poured, focusing largely on the two thousand fourteen vintage, but people are bringing back vintage. So not to drop names, but um, Egon Mueller will be bringing a ninety seven Auslese, which you know I don't know what that wine it would be now. 
five hundred bucks, hundreds, something like that. Hundreds of dollars for sure. Um, for twenty nine dollars, you can have a taste of that. Yeah, exactly. Plus many other wines. Plus a ton of others. So who else? JJ Prum, Maximum Grunhaus. I'm gonna miss them. I'm sure. Um, Lights, Lauer, Weiser Kunstler, Hofgut Falkenstein, Beurer, um, and there's Doctor Luzen, Robert Vile. Um, Again, now I'm sure I'm missing people, but it's 16 will growers. Will be, the, be there? What's that? Emic. Emic Batterieberg will be there for sure. Um, These are like all of the German producers that you guys need to know. These are are, are the greatest. Yeah, these are the, the top, top, top producers. Everyone will have three to four wines. So, yeah, it's 60 plus wines, 29 bucks. There are a few tickets open. There's basically you buy a ticket for a session. So it's mm-hmm. 29 bucks, and the sessions are from noon to one and then from one to two. So, you know, and that really is not that at one o'clock you're going to be kicked out the door, but more just to make sure that we have, you know, we have enough resources for everyone that's in the space at the time and just to make it as agreeable as a, an experience as possible. Yeah, and that's a great, that's a fantastic wine store as well. Yeah. Black Label. Yep. And it has a ton of space, so it should be a really good uh, a really good event. There's going to be sponsors there from Domain Wine Storage. Mark mm-hmm. Lazar is a good friend of mine, has one of the, one of the best um wine storage facilities so he'll be there pouring some stuff and just kind of uh hanging out he's a fun guy there'll be some uh, people from uh, zaki's wine auctions they're holding a a special german wine only auction which will be very very cool which will be more information about um coming up soon that'll be start on thursday i believe what day is today wednesday today is wednesday yeah so it's tomorrow (laughs) so tomorrow go to zaki's wine auctions and it's an all german wine auction and every single bottle is from the estates themselves so the provenance is perfect wines back to the late i think early 40s certainly some 59 or some really 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 crazy stuff and there's one special riesling fire power lot um that includes bottles from most of the producers attending and that will be auctioned off 100 percent of it going to um city harvest great cause so doing wow nicely done thank you nicely done on that note we're not bad for a week's work we're going to take a quick break and uh we'll be back more with steven bitteroff of von boden and riesling fire right after this Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Firesider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Firesider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. All right, we are back with uh, Stephen Bitteroff of Von Boden and Riesling Fire. Uh, if you have uh, not gotten your tickets yet, you, it's worth checking out the 
grand tasting for Riesling Fire this Saturday, uh, 12 to 1 or 1 to 2 at Black Label, Back Label Wine Merchants uh, in the city. Uh, it's going to be fantastic for $29. I think that is the probably the best wine deal uh, I've heard of in a long time. It's like 43 cents or something per glass. You can't afford not to come. You it'll can't. Be, it'll be, be that good. Uh, a bargain at twice the price, and that that is uh, actually true. Yeah. Um, See, so, you know, one of the themes that we like to talk about on our show is issues of sustainability and wine. I think that uh, German wines, um, on the one hand, have this reputation of being very squeaky clean. Um, I know that there's a big organic movement in Germany and maybe Austria, or certainly Austria and and a little bit into Germany as well. But on the other hand, I also feel like I've heard that they are not the most sustainable wines. I know when we were trying to find organic wines or wines made with ambient yeast to serve at Anfora, uh, that was more of a challenging uh, proposition. Um, Is is my characterization accurate? Do you find that people are confused and there is a misconception about sustainability in German wines? Yeah, for sure. I think it's I think it's a very confusing topic, and I'll you know, and I have a lot to to say. But I will to begin with just sort of say I'm an art historian is my training, so I'm not a chemist, I'm not a winemaker, so it's a complicated subject, and I'll do my I'll do my best to kind of parse it out. I think to begin with, you're absolutely true. You know, and this then goes back to the kind of 60s, 70s, this whole commercialization of wine, that kind of like wine industry that is not a good place to be and the leapfrog milks and the blue nuns and these kind of you know sweet wines that came in in the 70s and 80s and frankly this is true as germany but it's also i would imagine true of france and italy and mm-hmm. a lot of other places that you know that was not a great time for agriculture at least in terms of sustainability right now that said things are changing quite a bit in germany and i think the i think it you know i think it every every week every month every year it gets a it gets much, much, much better. And I also think that there's there's complications. And the, and the greatest one is due to the, the fact that it's a more humid climate, right? So the big issue with, and this, again, I'm sort of conveying, I'm speaking for through my winemakers or for my winemakers, as it were. The big complication there is largely around the organic farming is with copper. That's your, that's really, that's the, I think it's the only, or it's certainly the main fungicide that is promoted for use in organic viticulture. Now, if you're a winemaker in Spain or southern France or large parts of Italy where you're, you're in a very arid climate, that's not a huge an issue because you don't, you know, funguses are really more a humid, more humid climate issue. And if you're, your terroir is very, very arid, you can put a little bit of culper, copper in the soil. That's the organic way of farming. It sort of works as a fungicide and you're good to go. That said, copper is a, is a heavy metal. It's a, it's a, it's a not a very good heavy metal, as it were, right? It kills the soil. So to put copper, again, this is this is what I'm told at least, to put the amount of copper in the soils to sort of work certified organically in a lot of German winemaking places would be dangerous. So a lot of the winemakers I speak with and a lot of mine don't want to, they're basically, they certainly don't use, I don't think any of my producers use any uh, insecticides, any pesticides. Fungicides are the one issue, and a lot of them prefer, they'll say, listen, I've tried copper, I've been in French vineyard sites that mm-hmm. have been using copper for, you know, certified organic for decades, and the soil turns blue. It's not a good thing. So they say, listen, I'm going to use I'm gonna use engineered uh, fungicides that are biodegradable and disappear immediately, and, it's, and I have very genuine, really deep, thoughtful growers who work organically, certified organically, and I have deep, thoughtful, beautiful winemakers who I should say too have been working these sites for generations. So it's something you know. It's a it's one thing to buy a piece of land and sort of be like, I want that 
EcoCert, right? It's another thing to have your grand, your father and your grandfather and your grandfather before that work this vineyard site. Like, it's ingrained in you that you right. want this to continue for your children as well. So I have very genuine, thoughtful, beautiful winemakers on both sides of the equation. So it's say. something that I, I'm still very confused about, and I've, uh, especially in humid climate, right. uh, you know, the, the other thing about the copper is that it, it compounds, right? Exactly. Every time yeah. you do an, an, another treatment, it's the, what you have previously is still there. It's yeah. not like these uh, fungicides yeah. that, as you said, do biodegrade or, or go away. So it's something that I'm very confused about yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, as well. It's, it's really complicated. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, the smaller producers, you know, that I'm working with and many other people are working with are are doing the best they can. And there's it's a really complicated subject. And some of them are certified organic. Some of them are not. Most of them are using choose if they're not certified organic, almost always they're choosing not to use copper because they don't want to put it in the soil. And they're using they're using, you know, engineered fungicides that are that biodegrade much, much quicker mm-hmm. than copper. And again. I'm not a like, chemist, so I have very genuine, good people, thoughtful people on both sides of the aisle saying these things to me, and, and I sort of have to believe them. I guess the other hot-button issue when it comes to sustainability that is particular, uh, I mean, not only to all wines, but particular to German wines is uh, concepts of, of sulfur use. Um, oh. uh, how much how much sulfur, I think this is something that is still, we were just speaking with Scott Pachter from Appalachians last week, and how it's still such a, a misunderstood uh, I think for some of us in the industry, it's frustrating because it's 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 uh, you have uh, either naturally derived sulfur or you have uh, yeah. chemically derived right. sulfur. You can there are maximums that you're allowed to do. People don't add additional sulfur for export wines, right? All right. of this, but it seems that German wines, even if you are very conscientious in the vineyard, maybe producers like to add closer to the maximum allowed or, or more sulfur than sure. in other places. Yeah. And I think too, you know, that's true and I'll get to that, but I do think there's also, there's also a perception problem, which is the biggest issue for mm-hmm. German wines, right? People will open, I've seen very, very smart, intelligent people open bottles of wine that I know for a fact have on, have very, very, very little sulfur and they'll open it even before really smelling it go, oof, a lot of sulfur there. And the second thing they say is, and petrol, because those are, those are the things right associated with it. So it's like, if it's there or not, it's just like, you know that that's probably, people talk about German wines that way, so you say those things. Mm-hmm. So the, here's the, here's like the skinny on, um, on SO2, so far as I understand, at least in German winemaking culture. Historically speaking, yes, they would sort of, you know, carpet bomb a lot of these wines for export. It's just, you know, it's like a preservative. So it's like, listen, if I'm making, if I'm manufacturing a lot of a product, I want it to stay good on the shelves. Boom. The added complication with a lot of German wines is the residual sugar. And that, you know, that is, uh, that could give a lot of bacteria and a lot of yeast things to kind of go crazy with for spoilage. So it's, it's even more important when you have residual sugar. At this point, I would say for the great majority of German wines that, you know, are on the drier side, the sulfur levels are extraordinarily low. So mm-hmm. for a lot of the Trocken Rieslings you see out there, Trocken being the German word for dry, you see it on a, on a lot of labels. They're very, very low in sulfur, and the reason for that is, A, they don't have much residual sugar, so you don't need to put it there. Um, B, the soils, again, I'm speaking of the Mosel most specifically here, the soils are extraordinarily low to soils, and therefore the wines are very, very, very low in pH and very, very, very high in acidity. So that makes them wildly stable. So for a lot of my growers who don't think of themselves as natural winemakers or, you know, they're not kind of hip to that, to that jam— they're using they're having free sulfurs of 30 20 parts per million so very very low so they're you know when you get into at this point the thoughtful winemakers i had a conversation with keller he made a special riesling uh cabinet 
with a good amount of RS. And, you know, this gets a little hotty toddy, but whatever. It was made for the Queen of England, yada, yada. She wants to open it, like, you know, with the grandchildren. Not with them, but the grandchildren will open it. So it was meant to age 20 or 30 years. And he gave me a few bottles and was like, keep these around for a while because, like, they're they're heavily plugged with SO2. But the idea is that they're, they're long-distance runners. You're not supposed to open them now. And a lot of the SO2 will kind of, you know, will, right. what do you call that, like... It binds, binds. Mm-hmm. right? And the, so the free level goes down. So when you open it in 30 years, it's not that bad. You open it now, and I did, and it's like, yeah, it's there, and it blows off. But at this point, I think, you know, I think the sulfur thing is way overblown with a lot of German wine. Um, and I think it's largely used for the residual sugar wines. Right. And the last thing I'll say, just to add complexity to complexity, there's a story. This, to me, is a little apocryphal. I don't know. But Katarina Prum told me that, listen, in the 80s, her father started using indigenous yeast fermentations. And indigenous yeast fermentations, when they ferment, at least in German wine and Riesling, they have like a, a little stink to them. In Germany, you call it Spanti. All right. So her father starts doing this. He wants to use indigenous yeast, right? He's like, uh, he's a thoughtful winemaker, blah, blah, blah. Indigenous yeast, it's a more complicated fermentation. You get more complexity in the wine, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people, when they crack open prunes, they're like, whoa, it's super heavy with sulfur, right? That's always the thing with prune. Yep. Caterina Young will, prune. Exactly. Right. Everyone says yeah. that. And Caterina will tell me, listen, they don't, you know, for the cabinets and the lower RS wines, they don't use that much more sulfur than anyone else, but they've been doing indigenous yeast fermentations before it was kind of hip. So a lot of that association with sulfur and prune, to some extent, is, is indigenous yeast. Now, I've never like had indigenous yeast in one hand and sulfur in the other mm-hmm. to see how close they compare. But I'm told by a number of people who are smarter than me that indeed there is a, a likeness there. So if I want to be really cool, I would open up a prune and say, oh, a little spranti. 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 Spranti, yeah. S-P-O-N-T-I. Yeah, dude. Spranti. That's where it's at. It's fun to say. And uh, let's, <laughs> I, I'm sure this is another question you get all the time, but I'd love to, I mean, because you are the guy that I want to ask this about. The, the the note the petrol note I mean you brought it up uh, I've heard winemakers claim that this is actually a a flaw um, you're shaking your head like you've yeah, heard this sure. as well I've heard it from winemakers you know to me it's like trying to think of an analogy i find it very appealing i look yeah, for it, i'm like oh that's german reason like it makes yeah, me man it's one of those things it's like green shirts right it's like i don't know if you're going to like a funeral green shirt's probably a bad idea like it's jarring it doesn't quite fit with everything else yada yada but like i don't know in the right context in the right way like it adds complexity to it. and a lot of it is just personal taste like do you like salt or do you not like salt i think petrol can de- pet- a petrol note can develop in certain wines um, as a result, it seems to me it's like a little bit of oxidation, so bottles that were stored. But there's a little more of like a sourness to it, so it's a little bit distinct from just the petrol that you get in a lot of German wines, but also a lot of Alsatian and a lot of mm-hmm. kind of Southern. I, you know, I tend to associate it with, I'm sure someone smarter than me knows this, but I tend to associate it more with Southern regions, you know, a little more like Faltz, Rheinhessen, Rheingau, the Alsace, and a little bit less in German wines, at least in youth. And then with age, they kind of blossom everywhere. Some people like them, some people don't. To me, it's a question of how it's done, right? You don't say you like opera, you dislike opera. It's like, how is the opera saying, right? How is it played? That's a good one. That's not a good one. Interesting. Uh, That's my take. I I like it. Uh, (laughs) uh, Even when I find those notes in youth, which people say maybe that's like a premature note, I don't know. I just like I, yeah, I like those notes. I think it's uh, particular, yeah. uh, it, and even if it's maybe uh, an off note because it's if it's youthful and it shouldn't be showing that yeah. way, I, I find it fun. I yeah, like dude. It. I think it's I think it's totally legitimate. You know, a lot of what I'm interested in German wines and especially Riesling, German Riesling, 
is the is the the width of the vocabulary, the breadth of the vocabulary. So you know, a lot of my mission is like when I go out and taste people. People are familiar with, you know, the wine spectator tasting notes of German Riesling, which is like apple, pear, mango, like name a stone fruit, right? And like put a little honey and maybe, you know, whatever, some some herbs. To me, that's that's a very legitimate and kind of beautiful expression of German wine, but they can also be salty as hell. They can be like extraordinarily herbal, very tobacco-y, petrol-y, you know, they, they can speak Chablis and Muscadet as mm-hmm. well as Chablis and Muscadet. And to me, that... That's the beauty, too. Not that it's better, but that it has such a breadth. And we in the U.S. have largely been exposed to, like, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the vocabulary. So for me, a lot of the beauty is having old cabinet trockens, man. I, like, was out and about with these cabinet trockens from the 70s. Like, these are the basic dry wines of Germany Not meant to age initially, right? Quote, unquote, not meant to age. Like, mind-blowing. Like, just beautiful wines. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, and just to end on vocabulary, because I so enjoyed the little German vocabulary. Sponti. Sponti. Do you have some other fun German wine words? One or two that would... Let's see. That you you need to know? You need to know, or maybe that are fun to say. Either one. Flübereinigung. What is Flübereinigung? Yeah, exactly. So, Flübereinigung is, like, the best translation is renovation. So, Flübereinigung, what was done to the vineyards in the 70s and the 80s, and basically, you know, a lot of the vineyards in the Mosul were so steep that they weren't they weren't financially viable to work because you had to, like, you know, one dude had to go up there and just kind of collect them and come down. So they built roads in the vineyards just so, like, small cars and, like, tractors could get in there. So Flubereinigung is very fun. What else? Spanti. I mean, at the end of the day, there's something just magical about Spanti, isn't there? Spanti is the best. <laughs> All right, Stephen. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you on uh, Thank you, In man. The Drink. Uh, and again, if you guys uh, have an hour to, uh, or have an hour this weekend, stop by the Riesling Fire Tasting at Back Label Wine Merchants. Do I have a quick time to run through the growers? Go for it, yeah. So this Saturday, uh, you can go to the Riesling Fire website, I should say, RieslingFire.com. I don't know. It'll be on the podcast. You can figure that out. Um, Boyer, Dr. Luzen, Schlossgut Diel, Hofgut Falkenstein, Imik Paterieberg, J.J. Prum, Kohler Ruprecht, Lauer Lights, uh, Maximum Grunhaus, Egon Mueller, Reb Holtz, Schloss Johannesburg, Gunter Steinmetz, Robert Weil, Weiser, Kunstler. $29 you can't afford not to go. That's amazing. And you can follow Stephen uh, at Riesling Fire on Instagram and Twitter uh, or at Von Bowden uh, on the same. All right. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, man. Thanks, everyone here at Heritage Woo-hoo! Radio Network. This has been In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. Spanti. That's Spanti. <laughs> listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.